everybody. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, and as we turn our attention to your word now, we pray that you would allow us to see him even more clearly, to understand our need for him even more acutely, and that you would receive much glory through the growth that you produce in our hearts and in our minds, we pray. Amen. You know, it's amazing how easily the words of people can change our perspective on life and reality. A couple weeks ago, I was getting ready for work in the morning when my three-year-old son came bouncing into the bedroom like a little bunny on a spring day. Smile from ear to ear, and he asked delightedly, is it my birthday? Is it my birthday? Now, as you know, for a three-year-old boy, your birthday is like clearly one of the best days of your life. So I think it goes something like Christmas Day, number one, free ice cream day, number two, and, and your birthday, number three. And so he was all excited, and I looked at Amy, and Amy looked at me, and we knew that something was fishy. And so I asked him, why do you think it's your birthday today? And we found out that his sisters decided to play a joke on their little brother. In their depraved minds, they schemed to go into his bedroom early in the morning and to wake him up with all the fanfare that you would expect on a birthday. And so they wished him a happy birthday, and out of his 6.30 a.m. stupor and slumber, he, he, he bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. Three-year-olds have a terrible sense of elapsed time, and so he bought it. And so there he stood, right in the middle of our bedroom, melting into the floor as we had to tell him that his birthday wasn't for another few months. To which he responded in all of the anger and rage, those girls are tricksters. <laughs> and he ran out of his room after them to exact his revenge. It's amazing how easily the words of people can change our perspective on life and reality. And as we turn our attention to John chapter 7, Jesus is on the scene, and there are all kinds of words from people in the midst of this crowd that he is in. And it's amazing to see how over the course of the book of John, over the course of the life of those who are exposed to Jesus, these words, these perspectives on Jesus are ever evolving and ever changing. And so I want to ask you to open a Bible with me to John chapter 7. Today we conclude a series that we've been in for now some number of months in the Gospel of John. We've been looking at chapters 1 through 7 and how Jesus reveals himself to people and to us. And in John chapter 7, starting at verse 25, we remind ourselves that he is in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. He's in Jerusalem with all of the Israelites who are celebrating the feast. And there's a tremendous buzz about what is happening around him. And so this is what it says, starting in verse 25. It says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said... Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. 
can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And so Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man does? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where, am I, where I go, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast... The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to him, Why did you not bring him? And the officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, who was one of them, said, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Remember the setting. Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a seven-day harvest festival in which the people were there to celebrate and to worship God for his provision of the crop that he had given in the year that had gone by, and to express their hope in his provision for the year ahead. This was a gathering of Jews from all over the known world. It was one of their biggest festivals. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, were in Jerusalem during this time. And Jesus' brothers wanted him to make his works known, to do miracles among the people so that he would become famous. But Jesus didn't 
come to do miracles. He instead came quietly and began to teach. And in his teaching, the tensions were raising around him. And so where we pick up the account in verse 25, you see that the first thing you notice is that the crowds at this festival have a ton of questions about him. Questions, 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 questions. You can almost hear the buzz as you read the story. In fact, it's one of the most dominant features of this little section of the story. Thirteen times we read of questions being asked. You can hear the murmur of the crowd as he moves among them. I wonder if you've ever experienced that before, if you've ever been in a crowd someplace where somebody famous or somebody controversial has been. It's a different experience. You can hear, you can feel the difference. I remember one time uh, as a child going to Walt Disney World with my family, and as we made our way from Pirates of the Caribbean to Space Mountain, you could see and hear that the crowd had a distinct buzz. Thousands of strangers who didn't know each other were talking. And they were sharing little bits of juicy information. Michael Jackson was there that day. The king of pop. And as you went about the park... Someone would see him with his entourage one moment, and then he would be gone the next. And the crowd lit up with questions, with speculation, with excitement. Now today, of course, the name Michael Jackson is associated with infamy, but in the 1980s, nobody was more famous. And it resulted in a different type of feel for the crowd. I may have told you the story of a couple years ago. Amy and I were having lunch down of Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, where we used to live on Cape Cod. And we came out of the restaurant, and the streets were littered with thousands of people in this sleepy little seaside town. And the crowd was abuzz because President Obama was having lunch across the street in a cafe with his daughters that day. And so questions after questions after questions. What are all the SUVs for? Why are there so many police? Where did all these people come from? President Obama is here? Where is he going to go next? Can we go too? And the atmosphere was electric on a hot summer day. All with curiosity about a person. And so Jesus is at the feast and you can feel the buzz as the questions are being asked again and again and again. And here's just some of them as you look at the text. Is this not the man they're seeking to kill? But here he is, he's speaking openly, nobody's saying anything to him. Can it be that the authorities really think that this is the Christ? But when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Where does this man intend to go that he says that we can't find him? Is Christ to come from Galilee? I thought he was supposed to come from someplace else. Or the Pharisees to the soldiers. Have you been deceived? Have you been deceived? Have you been deceived? Are there any of you religious leaders who actually believe in this person? And the questions keep coming. From a variety of angles. Some of them seemingly neutral and curious. Others with negative intent for his harm. 
And it's interesting to observe that over time throughout the Gospel of John, conversations among the crowds and more and more people engaging in the questioning, the more and more the public sentiment moves from supporting Jesus to condemning him. And what's at stake here is not a detailed knowledge of theology or doctrine or the law. What's at stake here is nothing more and nothing less than a basic knowledge of God himself. Do they recognize God? <laughs> Would you? If he was standing right in front of you. Because after all, throughout the course of these first seven chapters of John, that has been one of the consistent drumbeats of Jesus' message. That he is God. When they hear him speak, they hear God speak. When they see his face, they see the face of God. When they see him do miracles, they see the power of God. And he says to them right in verse 28, look at it. He's speaking among them and they're questioning, could the Messiah actually come from where he came from? We know this person, I didn't think we were going to know the Messiah. And Jesus says in verse 28 as he taught them in the temple, yes, you do know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. <laughs> this rings true with the things that Jesus has been saying all along. John chapter 5, earlier in the book, verse 23, Jesus says, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Or later in chapter 5, in verse 42, Jesus says, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Or John 6, 45, Jesus says it's written in the prophets that they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Or later on in John 8, the people said to him, Where is your Father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Or John 8, 42, Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me. <laughs> For I came from God, and I'm here. I come not of my own accord, but he who sent me. And so here Jesus stands in one of the greatest festivals of the most educated and most religious society in the known world at the time, and for him to even imply that they don't know God is highly offensive. How dare you, Jesus, say that we don't perceive reality clearly? How dare you, Jesus, say that our priorities aren't right? How dare you, Jesus, say that we don't know God? And it's not all that dissimilar from the chimes that you hear today. I mean, we live now in, in certainly the most educated or one of the most educated cultures in the history of the human race. We have access to more information on our fingertips than our forefathers had in entire libraries. We have advanced in sciences and technology, and our technology allows us to live life at a breakneck pace. And you can hear the buzz that the culture says about Jesus when his name comes up. It's questions, 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 questions. Some of them neutral and curious. Some of them 
negatively inclined. And then you read his words and you see his claims and we hear similar types of questions. How dare you, Jesus, tell us that we don't perceive reality clearly? How dare you say that we don't have our priorities right? How dare you, Jesus, say that there is only one way to know God? But that is exactly what he claims. And people, it says right here in the text, are dividing over him. And so don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if people continue to divide over him. Today, tomorrow, for months, for years ahead, until the end of human history, this will be the course. But think with me for a minute, again. Try to imagine with me the festival. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem. They've made all these makeshift tents to live in. They're celebrating. They're celebrating God's goodness and God's provision. And the festival is coming toward its conclusion. And near the end of the week, the high priest himself, the most revered holy man among them, gets a large flagon of water. He goes down to the pool of Siloam and he fills it up with water. And a processional begins through the streets. A parade of sorts. And as they process through the streets toward the southern gate of the inner courts, the shofars blow three times in celebration. And the choir erupts in song through the streets, singing the words of the Hallel Psalms of Psalms 113 through 118. And they begin to reach their pinnacle of these songs in Psalm 118, words that we've even said this morning. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let all who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. And all of the men of the crowd hold up their citrus fruit, signs of the bountiful harvest that the Lord has given them. And they shout aloud three times, Give thanks to the Lord! Give thanks to the Lord! Give thanks to the Lord! And the high priest takes the flagon of water and he takes the wine of the drink offering and he pours them out upon the altar in sacrifice and celebration to God, symbolizing that God has satisfied their needs. He's provided them with another year of harvest. And recalling to mind the promises of God that his spirit will be abundantly generous to them in the future. It is the pinnacle of the celebration. It's the reason why they're there. It's the expression of hundreds of thousands of people. And in that precise moment, Jesus stands up and he gives an invitation. To all those who are his friends, to all those who are neutral and curious, and to all of those, even those who are his enemies. 
And he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What an astounding invitation at a pointed time. Jaws dropped open. They had to. Pharisees seethed. Enemies plotted. And Jesus is offering them something that they keep seeking for but are never finding. He's offering them an invitation for their soul. Think about the simple nature of the invitation with me. There's really no conditions about this invitation. There's only the condition that somebody thirsts. Doesn't matter if you're embarrassed about your past. Doesn't matter if you're ashamed about your present. It doesn't matter if you've come from the right family or the right race or the right socioeconomic background. It doesn't matter if you're just confused even about who God is or what God wants you to do. There's no conditions to accept this invitation. It's just simply thirst. Thirst is the way of describing the desires of the soul. Jesus isn't talking about physical thirst, though that helps us understand what he means. He's not talking about emotional need, though that might help us a little bit as well. Jesus is talking about your soul. One of the most important things that you can know about yourself is that you have a soul. And it will last forever. Your soul is that immaterial part of you. And it will be perpetually unsatisfied without God. Because you were made for God. And the invitation that Jesus gives is to come and drink. To recognize, to come means simply to recognize that you have some thirst in your soul. Not everyone has a sensation of thirst of the soul at the same time, but I imagine that some of you here today almost certainly do. And Jesus invites you to come and to drink. Coming means that you recognize thirst in some way. Maybe that recognition is the sense of conviction or guilt from your sin. Perhaps it's a nagging desire to experience a greater experience of God. Maybe you can't escape the idea of life and death and mortality and eternity. You can't get it out of your mind and it's tearing you apart on the inside. You thirst. And Jesus says, come and drink. Sometimes we might think of our thirst as a soul as an ongoing dissatisfaction. You try this to satisfy, and it doesn't, and so you try that to satisfy, and it doesn't, and no matter what it seems you do to try to satisfy, you pour yourself into your work, or you pour yourself into your vacations, or you pour yourself into your hobbies, or you pour yourself into your relationships, but you're still dissatisfied. You thirst. Jesus says, come and drink. 
vacationing the British Virgin Islands with his family, the magazine editor named William Falk found himself longing for something different, for a different life. Gazing across the water, a little island caught his attention. And he learned that the population of that island was particularly known for enjoying a carefree lifestyle. And so Falk decided that's where he wanted to go. He confessed, I have no real wants. If anything, my life is too full. One author, Greg Easterbrook, said that's precisely the problem. <laughs> Most Americans enjoy a higher standard of living than 99.4% of the 80 billion human beings who have ever lived. Yet we're still not content. Our lives are characterized by too much of a good thing. He says we have excess at every turn. We're surrounded by so much food that obesity has become a national crisis. We're tempted by so much entertainment and information and stuff to buy that we sleep three hours a day less than our grandparents did. At times, it leaves you staring at a four-mile-long island on the horizon and wondering if you should just chuck it all. Despite having nearly everything we need, we thirst. And so here's Jesus in the middle of the ceremony, and we just see this tremendous picture and celebration of the pouring out of the water and the wine to symbolize that God himself provides the most important and basic needs for the Jews in the Feast of the Tabernacle. And Jesus stands up and he says, I am God and I provide you so much more than just this. It reminds you of John chapter 5. He's standing with a woman and an adulterous woman at the well, and he says to her and invites her to drink of the living water and never be thirsty again. Or John chapter 6, Jesus is with a crowd of people, and he invites them to eat the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's interesting that Jesus keeps giving the same type of invitation in all of these different contexts with the individual who's deep into her sin. Come and drink the living water. With the crowd of people who have physical hunger, he points them to their greater need. Come and eat the bread of life. And now, in the midst of the religious, to say, come and drink all who are thirsty, and living waters will flow out from you. It's almost like Jesus keeps emphasizing the fact that no matter what you think your need really is, your greatest need is the satisfaction of your soul. And I think that leads us to a pretty good definition of, definition of what it means to have faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus is not just the mental recognition or mental assent of certain facts about him, but faith is trusting him for the satisfaction of your soul. And in that trust, he forgives you of your sins. <laughs> he gives you a new life. He promises you a hope and a future, and he guarantees for you eternal life. Faith in Jesus is trusting him for the satisfaction of your soul. And so no matter what questions 
are being asked about Jesus in the culture, no matter what voices might try to persuade you to simply trust yourself, to believe in yourself, to try harder, to seek satisfaction in a variety of things. Jesus gives the unconditional invitation to come and drink. And he gives it to you. If you're thirsty, come and find the satisfaction in Jesus. If today you're thirsty, then come and drink from him. And the result, he says, in the second part of the invitation is amazing. Look with me at verse 38. He stands up in the middle of the crowd and he says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit whom those believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not been glorified. So streams of water were just poured out on the altar of the feast. And the image of the streams of water is the image of the promises of God, the abundant life that God chooses to give, the fulfillment of his long-term or eternal promises. The rivers of water throughout the Old Testament all point to this generous abundance of God. And Jesus stands up and offers those very rivers and says, they will dwell within you. And it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And so a couple chapters later, John 14, Jesus is saying to his disciples to obey his commandments. And then he promises them the power to do so. The Holy Spirit, the helper, the spirit of truth will dwell in them and continue to point them back to Christ. Jesus not just quenches our thirst or satisfies our soul in the moment. He will do so in an ongoing effect by his spirit. John 16, a little bit later, Jesus encourages his followers, don't fall away. Don't fall away from me. And then he promises the coming of the Holy Spirit, who will guide them into all truth by pointing them back to Jesus. He doesn't just give them a temporary quenching of the thirst of their soul. In fact, now that the water itself wells up from within inside them. He not only gives water for the soul, he provides ongoing streams of water coming from the soul. But it's only for those who are thirsty. And so what about you? Are you thirsty? I think of the picture of thirst that we could give. We could describe all sorts of pictures of what it means to be thirsty. One of them is seen in a fairly popular film of some time gone by called Castaway. Castaway is the story of Chuck Nolan, who was played by Tom Hanks. He was a top engineer for FedEx. And while flying over the South Pacific, a violent storm damages the company jet, causing it to crash into the ocean. And Nolan survives the crash. Everybody else aboard is killed. And he clings to the yellow life raft as he rides out the storm and he ends up on an island where he'll be for the next four years until he's ultimately rescued. And from the very first day he arrives on the island, his greatest concern outside of his fear is his desperate need for water. He is dangerously thirsty. And after he discovers coconuts falling from the trees... He frantically attempts to open one. He repeatedly throws a coconut against a boulder 
but the hard shell is unmarked. And using his strength, he pounds a coconut with a rock, but without success. And then he tries to drill a hole into one, and then he flies into a fury as he still cannot access the juice on the inside of the fibrous seed, and he is dangerously thirsty. Eventually, he employs a sharp rock as an axe. And he's able to cut into and remove the outer husk left with just the hard shell. And he finally breaks it open to watch most of the milky liquid spill to the ground. And Nolan lifts up a fragment of the shell and he drains the few remaining drops of liquid to his mouth. How like our spiritual thirst as we desperately seek to find satisfaction from here, from there, and from over here. And yet Jesus invites us, if anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. And so if you are thirsty today, friends, come and find your satisfaction Jesus. I want to ask you to pray for me, or with me, and as we pray today, I'm conscious of the fact that so many here have enjoyed the quenching of this thirst that Jesus is talking about by putting their faith in him, and yet there are some here, maybe many even, who are still very thirsty. It's a picture of our need for a Savior and the faith that we can have in that Savior. And so if you're in that place today, if you're thirsty and you want to come to Jesus and drink, let me give you a word of encouragement. To come to Jesus and drink means that you come and find your satisfaction in him, that you believe in him, that you ask him for the forgiveness of your sins and you put your trust in him for satisfaction going forward. This is not something that just happens to you. This is a decision that you make to come, it says. And in doing so, you experience a new life, a new change. As you go from maybe a casual observer of Jesus to embracing him in faith as your Savior. And I want to give you the opportunity to do that today. And so as we pray now together, if you're in that place where you are thirsty, where you desperately need respite, where you desperately need to be quenched of the thirst of your soul, please pray silently as I pray aloud and come to Jesus in doing so. Father in heaven, we recognize that we are made for you, that we have a soul whose needs will only be met by you. God, we are thirsty. We come to Jesus, who is the only one able to quench this thirst. Forgive us of our sins. Provide for us the satisfaction that only he can offer. And point us toward our hope and toward our future as we have streams of living water flowing from us. We pray in faith, trusting that he is the Lord and committing to follow him.
Amen.